Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Carolyn Music. She's the Chair of Christian Thought in the Department of Classics and Religion at the University of Calgary, and she specializes in medieval Christianity, with particular emphasis on its devotional dimensions and the contribution of female teachers and preachers in Western Europe. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate being invited to this podcast. So today you're here to speak to us about your favorite mystic, who is Julian of Norwich. Yes, when I thought about who was my favorite mystic, Julian came immediately to mind. But before we begin our discussion of Julian's life and works, I'd like to hear a little bit more about yours. So can you tell us how you got involved in the academic world of mysticism? My primary area of research are, are sermons and preaching history in the Middle Ages. And way back in the Middle Ages, when I did my, my PhD, I worked on uh, Jacques de Vitry, who was a 13th century preacher who wrote hundreds of sermons and was uh, very helpful in educating priests on how to preach. But another element of Jacques de Vitry's output and his engagement in the 13th century was his involvement with the proto-beguine Mary of Wanyi who, after being educated at Paris, Jacques himself then went north to be with his spiritual mother, as he called her. He found in her a certain enthusiasm and spiritual engagement that eluded him. And he wrote some sermons about what we would call begins, I guess, proto-begins. And in that, he talks about women and their value, their spiritual value, and their insights. And so it's really through those writings, getting very interested in the role of women in education and their involvement with preachers and themselves as preachers and teachers, that I was led to mysticism, not vice versa. Because very often, I think women are involved in what we think of as the mystical tradition and that interaction with the pursuit of looking for the divine understanding uh, the divine through prayer, etc. So that's how I came to it, through sermons, through Jacques de Vitry and his involvement with Mary of Wanyi. And then how did you come to find Julian? After doing my PhD, I became a university lecturer in the UK, and I wanted to get my students enthused about medieval religion. And sometimes sermons aren't the most interesting things for students to read to get them interested in the Middle Ages. And being in the UK at that time, a very natural move was to look at medieval sources produced in England. And there we had Julian of Norwich and some beautiful translations of her works. And so that became a very helpful go-to text to try to get students interested and involved in the medieval enterprise, you know, what was going on in the Middle Ages and why is medieval religion important. So it's really as a teaching tool, I came to Julian and it was such a discovery to read her. And it was really the response very often of students that kept me going back to her. Something about Julian really spoke to them. And there was a certain openness and accessibility that enabled us to engage, to talk about religion, uh, where really the chronology sort of fell away. And Julian's quest for understanding God and the human condition is really what came to the fore. 
very often in our discussions. So it's the beauty of the text and, and what a great text it is for education. So now let's speak a little bit about Julian. What do we know about her life? Like most people from the Middle Ages, we don't really know too much about Julian. In fact, we don't even know her name. We have an idea that she was born around 1343. And when she was in her 30th year, she tells us that she had a very bad illness. It appeared that she was on her deathbed, and then she had a series of 16 visions. And it was at this time where she was uh, surrounded by her mother and some other people. She had already received last rites, in fact, and they had called the parish priest in to comfort her, which they thought was her last or final moments. And he came, he brought a crucifix, and he held it in front of her to bring her comfort. And it's when he held up the crucifix before her that she started to experience these visions, these very vivid visions of the passion of Christ. She talks about seeing the red blood trickling down from the crown of thorns. So that is a very helpful bit of information that we have about Julian from her own text, Revelations of Divine Love. We know also that sometime after this event, she became a recluse at the Church of Julian of Norwich, and that's where she gets her name, Julian. So we actually don't even know what her name is, but it's thanks to her writings that we know a little bit about her. And also there are some things in the records from Norwich, uh, from Wills, that indicate the quest to the anchorite Julian. So she was supported by some of the locals and her younger contemporary, Marjorie Kemp, when she came to Norwich, the famous scene in the book of Marjorie Kemp, she seeks out Julian for spiritual support and nourishment. And it's a very telling scene. So these indicate a little bit of the life of Julian. But beyond that, we really don't know very much about Julian, who she was, where she came from outside of these bits of information. So we don't have a lot of information about Julian's life, but we do have her texts. So what do we know about those? There are really very few manuscripts of the revelations of divine love. And there's two texts, which we call the short text and the longer text. And the short text uh, was written sometime after she had her 16 visions. And it gives an account of what these were. It's uh, 25 chapters. And there's only one manuscript that survives from that. But it seems the copy was produced during her lifetime. So there is some indication that there may have been some circulation of the text. And then if we jump to the 17th century, the longer text, uh, there's a handful of manuscripts that appear to have been mainly read by English Catholic exiles on the continent. So although there is a survival, I mean, we have the text that they survive, uh, Julian in her own lifetime, with the example of Marjorie going to her and people giving her support as an anchorite, she didn't seem to have a big impact after her death. But it's in the late 19th, 20th century that her text really takes off. And people read this uh, with, with the rise of the interest in mysticism in the 20th century. And also that then starts to merge with the study of women's history and then gender studies. But Julian just took off in the 20th century translated into uh, numerous languages, 
So it's in the 20th and 21st century that Julian really is experiencing her popularity. Why do you think this work became so popular? What is it about Julian's text that resonates with people? There's something in Julian. They saw Julian as speaking to a spiritual desire that was missing in their religious experience, perhaps in institutional religion, whatever. So now there's a new response where people see Julian as speaking to them in a compassionate way. So I think there's also a language of compassion that people find within the revelations of divine love that Julian wrote. And I think compassion reaches across the ages. And that's why she keeps coming into focus. And also, I alluded to Julian's text being a great text to use in educating students about medieval religion. It's also a great text to use in educating students about misconceptions of the Middle Ages. Because here we have, first of all, a woman, theologian from the 14th century, writing in English and talking about a compassionate God, a God of forgiveness, a God of love, a God of inclusivity. And so all these elements allow for insight to a different view of the Middle Ages and what maybe the Middle Ages sometimes can teach us. And I think Julian of Norwich is so popular for those reasons. And it also is just an effective way to see that there were so many different ways of looking at religion then and now. I think people are mystified by the unusual nature or what they see as the unusual nature of the text itself. What forms of interaction and communication does Julian have with the divine? How does she experience these revelations? She sees with her eyes the image of the, the very vivid physicality of the blood and the suffering passion of Christ. Then she has a spiritual understanding and she also has discourse with Jesus. And, and so there's all these different levels of understanding and experience that she has. So how does Julian come to write the Revelations of Divine Love? What inspires her to document this experience? So she has doubt about what has happened to her initially and how she's going to convey that. Right after she experiences the visions, she thinks she's going to die and then she realizes she's not going to die. And when she's on the mend, she's conflicted. She says a man from a religious order came to visit her and she said to him, I think I was delirious. And then she says, and I saw this vision and she immediately feels regret and becomes very despondent because A, she feels that she's distrusted God who gave her the vision by saying that she was delirious. And B, I think because she, she says to this man, that I saw this vision. And, and she's conflicted about how is she going to reveal what has happened to her? And she struggles with that. And then she has a spiritual understanding of what occurred to her. And she said, this is from the short text, chapter 22. I saw my soul as large as if it were a kingdom. And from the properties that I saw in it, it seemed to me to be a glorious city. In the center of that city sits our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, glorious, highest Lord, 
and I saw him dressed imposingly in glory. He sits in the soul, in the very center, in peace and rest, and he rules and protects heaven and earth and all that is. The manhood and the Godhead sit at rest, and the Godhead rules and protects without any subordinate or any trouble. And my soul was blissfully filled with the Godhead, which is supreme power, supreme wisdom, supreme goodness. In all eternity, Jesus will never leave the position which he takes in our soul, for in us is his most familiar home and his favorite dwelling. So, you know, she sees that God is within, and this is a, a certainty that she has, and that pervades really the whole of her writings. So, so as I say, that's the short text, and the long text, it's uh, written some 15 to 20 years after the short text, and it's uh, 86 chapters, and um, it's a greater reflection on the short text. But it also indicates the power of her visions that she wants to share with others. The visions are given to her not as a special gift, she says, for herself, but for her to then relate to other Christians, her fellow Christians. And she spends the rest of her life trying to figure out and sharing this, these visions with her fellow Christians and trying to get to what God is and why and how this is important for humanity. So what kind of ideas does she put forward in the text? How does she characterize God? What key message do the revelations have for humanity? She struggles with the judgmental portrayal or understanding of God, God as judge. And she has difficulty seeing that. Throughout the whole text, she reassures the reader that she believes in everything that Holy Church teaches, what is taught to her, what is preached to her. She struggles with questions, I guess we would say, theodicy, what is sin, what is evil, and ultimately sees that all of creation, of course, is good, which is Christian teaching. But it's that what she focuses on. She understands she's not at all deluded by the fact that people struggle, there's sorrow. She talks about sorrow and struggle, and there are moments within the text where she is desperate herself. But ultimately, what's interesting for Julian is that she cannot not see the positive and the goodness in creation, not only in God, but I think what's most important in some ways is that she cannot help but see the goodness in humanity. And that is an extremely hopeful positive message that really comes across from the text. The most important thing I think that Julian tries to relay is that this all starts really in a condition of prayer. This is how what we would term the mystical experience, consciousness, really evolves with Julian. Because another bit of information that we have about her is a little bit before, it's before the illness, she starts out her revelations of divine love, saying that she prayed or she spoke to God. She asked, petitioned God to experience his passion, to understand his passion, to experience an illness that would make her understand his suffering. And, and this is what indeed what happens when she's 30 years old, 30 and a half. But she also prayed that she have contrition, compassion, and a longing for God. She prayed for those things, and those things stay with her. And 
really the revelations is showing that through prayer, and she says this, that prayer unites us, unites the soul with God. So in many ways, it's a very commonplace situation or ritual or approach to God that she sees the entry into the search through prayer. That is the most fundamental message I think she's getting through to her fellow Christians. So is the text a form of guidance then, a means of encouraging the reader to long for and reach out to God through their prayer? I think ultimately that is the larger message of the revelations is that through trying, through searching, and having this willingness to search for God is really the best humans can do in the condition. And although she accepts that sin is is what separates humans from God, it's through the willingness to search and to want to will and do God's will. And that is through prayer, as she says it. So what happens, I think, for her, though, is that her observations of how this will be fulfilled is a very positive message. At the end of her short text, the first text that she composed, she ends with a discussion of fear, but how fear of God is the start of knowledge, and she refers to fear. But at the end of the long text, she talks about, this is famous as chapter 86, which is not in the short text or elements of it, is that the message through the visions, the reason why God gave her these visions, is love, ultimately love. And that is the message that she says that we must understand, that God is love. It, now, it sounds simple, but ultimately, that's all she can conclude, that God is love. And this is why the message is such. I think there's a practical element here, though, too. I think Julian, at some point, we're not quite sure when, but does become a recluse, becomes an anchoress. And a large part of the anchoress's activity would be to give spiritual support, advice, counsel to those who were seeking that uh, nurturing. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, would you be able to give a brief explanation of what it meant to be an anchoress or an anchorite during this period? Anchorites were fairly widespread in England and Norwich in particular in East Anglia. And men and women could be anchorites, but very often what they would be, they would be attached to a church and they would live maybe by themselves or maybe sometimes in a pair. And they would be mindful of God, pray to God through ritual. And that was, of course, important for personal spiritual development. But they also were part of the community. They were part of the spiritual religious world because they fulfilled a very important role in the religious experience of those who lived in and around towns and cities where they were. And this was to provide spiritual counsel to men and women in the community who sought it. And uh, the church can provide institutional support and uh, confession and all those things, but there are these other elements of spiritual nourishment. And very often the anchorites fulfilled that role. And I think through the years as an anchoress, Julian probably dealt with a lot of people who were extremely anxious 
who had fear about their salvation, who worried about sin, who worried about divine punishment, and how could they be forgiven by God. And this is something that she really develops and focuses on because I think it was something that she probably met day in and day out. Well, the 14th century was quite the tumultuous time. Extremely tumultuous. Uh, Julian is born a few years before the Black Death. So people know they're going to be on Earth for a very short time. They're, They're reminded that death is around the corner and that they need to be prepared. Look out, Jesus is coming. (laughs) Uh, So yes, there's an immediacy there. And that comes through in Julian's text too. I mean, one of the reasons why she wants to experience bodily illness to the point of near death is to show herself the hopelessness of the here and now and how short-lived that is, but also to show others that and to make them very aware that they need to have their house in order. So I think there is a certain amount of anxiousness that she had to deal with very often in her role as an anchorite in Norwich and people coming and seeking solace. And to hear that message that she gives is very reassuring. And it does show a sense of redemption, a sureness of redemption and compassion and forgiveness that seemed to be number one on her message for her fellow Christians. So that is the important thing to focus on. In the text, Julian makes a point of stressing her own orthodoxy. Could you speak a little bit about why she might have thought that was necessary and perhaps about the role of the institutional church in her text? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, as you know, Amanda, the dominant discourse very often that we hear discussing the role of women and teaching in the Middle Ages Very often, if women were to be viewed as teaching publicly, especially religious information, theology, we would get Pauline texts wheeled out. Women should keep silent and not teach, and all this go-to sort of biblical citations to show who had authority to teach about what. Julian is very aware of that, and she incorporates some of that language. She says, don't pay attention to this frail, weak woman. Don't pay attention to the medium. Pay attention to the message that was given by God. And so she, in a way, diffuses the criticisms that she knew could be thrown at her. But she also goes on to reason. She says, just because I am a woman doesn't mean I should not relay this message that comes from God. So she's very much aware of the arguments that would have been pitted against her. And she does it very delicately and with great balance, but I think with a gentle rigor that enables her to carry on the discourse. And what's interesting is that there seems to be just a little bit of evidence too within the text that she is supported by the local clergy, the local religious men. And again, this shows diversity in the way people are viewed. You know, it's not just black and white. So first of all, she had already received last rites, but the parish priest is fetched and he wants to be there to comfort her in what he thinks is going to be her last hours. And he puts the crucifix there. So he wants to be there with her. And then as soon as she rallies and she's better, who's there? The first person, a man from a religious order. And then when she tells him 
that she had this vision, although she says it might be delirium. He takes it very seriously. And she's a bit ashamed by that, but he takes what she says very seriously and listens to her. So I think her text and how she presents it reflects that there is wiggle room. There is the ability, if presented in the right way, I'm not saying that you could just go out there as a woman and preach publicly or, you know, teach publicly, but if presented in the right way with the right language, you know, it's a, it's a deep understanding. She understands the situation, but also as I think in this mystical tradition, she's compelled to tell what she saw because in that she sees a truth. It's given to her, not because she's special, but because there is something there that she must share that God has given her. And this is the kind of language she uses. I'm not doing this because I'm special. I'm doing this because everyone must see and hear it. Where she is straying into areas of Christian thought that aren't predominant, at least in the sources, is this notion of universalism, of forgiveness of all. Although she does focus on people who are Christians. But if, if you keep reading it, it, her writings seem to point to that God is dwelling within humanity. You know, there seems to be these general statements of a, a universalism that is all will be saved. You know, her famous line, all will be well, or God's famous, Jesus' famous line, all will be well, according to Julian. But there's this notion that she cannot help but see the goodness in humanity. And um, on one level, yeah, one could say, well, this is, this is a universalism that all will be saved, and that strays into a sort of heretical teaching. But she never pushes it that way. She is very nuanced and extremely sophisticated and aware of what she's saying. Because she keeps going back to the point that she's struggling with issues of sin, evil, the big ones, right? And the, uh, the whole issue of theodicy. And she's honest with her struggle with that because she sees a compassionate God. And this is really the focus of her study, of her work, is the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God. And so rather than mounting an argument, as you might find in a scholastic text, of why, let's say, universalism is right, or why you need to focus mainly on forgiveness, she's just saying, let's talk about forgiveness, God's forgiveness. Let's focus on his compassion Let's focus on his love. And that's what she's doing. That's how she's presenting it. And she's not a systematic theologian. You could see her more as a pastoral, maybe pastoral theologian is a better term. So she's not pushing it, but she's just saying, this is what I see. And she's leaving it at that. But the message is, one would say, one of inclusivity that is much more creative and moving away from the norm you would find in her other English mystical contemporaries like Richard Rollo or Walter Hilton. You know, they're very traditional. She, she's moving away from that. That's absolutely true. But she's focusing on things that people would find hard to object to. God is compassionate. God loves, you know, um, and that's the way she's discussing it. And that all in all, creation is good. And that means humanity is good. So what is it about Julian and her work? What makes her your favorite mystic? 
I think it is the positivity. It is the belief not only in God, but in humanity. And that, I think, is what speaks across the ages as we, we live in a different time and world than Julian. But having faith in humanity is something that we need. <laughs> and, uh, and she's so hopeful there. So I like going back to that text to try to see what she's seeing. What is she seeing that gives her this hope? Because she's, she must have been dealing with so many very difficult accounts and interactions that she had as an anchoress and hearing people's struggles. But yet she comes up with this view that she absolutely sees as the truth of the message that she needs to get across to give people this hope. She sees the visions as a powerful gift that has been given to everyone. And that's what drives her to write. And so the mystical isn't private. It's a completely public and communal. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your love of Julian of Norwich and her message of hope and faith in humanity. Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate it. I also appreciate you giving me the opportunity to read uh, Julian on a very cold February weekend for this podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Please join me next time when I speak to Laura Setveit-Miles about Richard Methley. 